Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for our special meditation this morning is our alternate first lesson for the day, Numbers 12, 1-15, which is printed in your bulletin. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, Ambition. Can it be good? Is it okay for Christians to be ambitious? It's kind of interesting how we react to and use that word. If you're talking about, say, a 17-year-old who is working hard in school, doing some kind of internship and, and very involved in extracurriculars because he or she has a particular career goal in mind, ambitious is, is usually used as a, as a compliment. That, that kind of drive is something we like to see in youth. But when you're speaking of, say, a 37-year-old mid-level executive who is leveraging every one of his or her work relationships, buttering up the boss and the boss's boss's boss, taking on extra assignments and grabbing all the credit he or she can, clearly trying to get ahead of everyone else, well, then that is typically an ambitious we don't approve of, as with politicians. Sure, the candidates we support are just altruistic public servants, but everyone else in politics, well, they're in politics to serve their own selfish interests, right? And and every higher office they run for just exposes that selfish ambition even more. Just look at everything going on right now in the media in connection with the the Kavanaugh nomination right now. Everyone involved on every side has been accused of selfish, power-hungry, or vindictive ambition for the things that he or she has done or said. Now, we would enjoy it if the charge of selfish ambition stuck only to those whose politics or actions we disagreed with. But the fact that James, in our second reading today, condemns it as worldly, unspiritual, and demonic in a letter written to believers, and also the fact that Jesus finds he needs to confront the same kind of let me get ahead of you who is greater attitude among his own disciples? Well, all this makes clear that this is something Christians need to confront in themselves, not just others. And as followers and servants of Christ, we actually have a particularly sticky and tricky temptation to wrestle with. Now, sins of anger, pride, jealousy, and and ambition all have one thing in common. They are corruptions of things that are good and proper, things that God created in us before the fall. The godly desire to do things that matter gets twisted by sin into selfish ambition. And as Christians, we all have... God-given vocations, our our various callings as as husbands and wives, as parents and children, students, workers, whatever those may be. 
And those in those vocations, we do things that matter, serving our neighbors as God's representatives. So when Satan gets together with our own sinful natures, they take hold of us and they whisper, you, you could be making so much more of a difference if you just pushed ahead of everybody else. And you obviously matter so much more than those other guys. You deserve to get recognition for it and the position and the power that reflects how important you really are. And it's hard to see the sinful side of such ambition because it is so intimately connected with good things like providing for our families, serving our communities, leading in the church, and so on. When God has given you responsibilities and and blessed you in them, it is far too easy to start thinking that you deserve what you've got and probably deserve even more. We see all this on display in a tragic lesson from the book of Numbers. The children of Israel are still in the wilderness. They have left Egypt, but that was more than a year ago. They finished at Mount Sinai, where they spent a lot of time. But they have not yet moved on far enough to where they they send their spies into the promised land and where they then are condemned by the Lord to 40 years of wandering because they failed to trust His promise that He would give them that land flowing with milk and honey. Now you may perhaps recall that Moses was called by God to lead Israel out of their slavery in Egypt, but that when God gave him that call, speaking through the burning bush in in this same wilderness, that, that Moses complained. He complained that he was a lousy speaker. And the Lord was actually a little angry with him at that point, but he called his bluff. And he said, okay then, all right, you don't have to do all the speaking before Pharaoh. Your brother Aaron will serve as your spokesman, but you still have to go. And then later, after all the confrontations with Pharaoh, after the ten plagues, after they had left Egypt, God announced that Aaron was to be his high priest for his nation of Israel, and that only Aaron's descendants after him would be Israel's priests. Now Moses had another sibling, Miriam, and the Lord had used her also. In Exodus 15, she is called a prophetess. And in that role, she leads the women of Israel in singing praise to God after he had delivered his people mightily by taking them through the Red Sea on dry ground and then destroying the pursuing Egyptian army by bringing the waters back down upon them. But this was not the first time that we encountered Miriam, though. The first time we see her, she is a little girl waiting in the reeds along the Nile River in Egypt, watching over the little basket treated with tar and pitch that her mother has placed her baby brother in. And Miriam is looking to see what will happen to him. 
When Pharaoh's daughter goes down to the river to bathe, she finds him, and her heart goes out to this little bawling infant. And then Miriam, a slave child, dares to approach the royal princess, and she says, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? And when she gets a yes, she goes and gets her mother. So her baby brother gets to live with his own family until he is weaned, and then he is taken to Pharaoh's daughter and lives there and is raised as her son, as a prince of Egypt. And Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses. Now you can easily imagine Miriam as a girl being praised for her watchfulness and her her cleverness and how it resulted in such a good thing for the family, but especially for Moses, who, who would have been killed by the Egyptians otherwise. Yet it's also not hard to imagine Miriam when she is older, thinking about how she should get at least some credit for Israel's deliverance from Egypt, because after all, if she had not made all those arrangements there by the Nile so many years earlier, well, Moses would never have been around to lead the people to their freedom. But she apparently did not feel she was getting the recognition or the respect that she deserved. She was, frankly, jealous of her little brother. And it's not hard to imagine the family dynamics and sibling rivalries that would have been at work there. And as the older sister to both Aaron and Moses, she seems to have had success getting Aaron, at least, to follow her lead. Even though he was God's appointed high priest and she was not. Perhaps you can see where this is leading. We read from Numbers 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married for. He had married a Cushite woman. They said, Has the Lord really spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he also spoken through us? The Lord heard this. Now, this is a classic case of someone complaining about one thing as a cover for something much more important. Whom Moses had married was not really the issue, and it's worth noting that God had apparently had no issue with his marriage. What really bothered Miriam and Aaron along with her was that little brother Moses was in charge. They had to listen to him. What the two foolishly forgot, of course, was that their complaint against Moses would be heard by someone other than Moses, the Lord himself. And even if Moses would have been upset to hear this, his opinion of himself was such that he did not need to defend himself or, or to lash out against this rebellion rising up from within his own family. The Holy Spirit confirms this. Now the man Moses was very humble, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. But if Moses was going to remain silent... The God of Israel that he served would not. 
Right then the Lord spoke suddenly to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. You three come out to the tent of meeting. God knew everything that had been said. Even more, he knew what had been thought and felt in their hearts and minds. Not just at this moment, but all the moments leading up to it. And in a way, Aaron and Miriam get what they had been asking for. The Lord speaks to them. But do you imagine them at this point that that they were thinking, all right, now God's going to give me what I deserve. Or, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't quite going the way I hoped it would. Think what would go through your mind and how you would feel to, to have your boss pop his head into your office immediately after some problem has arisen and say to you, come see me in my office now. Obviously, The Lord's summons could not be ignored. The three of them came out. The Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance to the tent. He called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. Now God meets them at the entrance to the tent of meeting because Miriam was not allowed inside. But this also meant that what transpired would be in full view of the people. And the Lord coming down in the pillar of cloud would have definitely got everyone's attention. This muttering and complaint against Moses would not be something kept hidden. So now, about what Aaron and Miriam deserved. The Lord said, Now listen to my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision. In a dream, I will speak with him. Not so, however, with my servant Moses. He is faithful in my whole household. With him, I speak face to face, clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then... Are you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? The Lord's anger burned against them, and he left. Where were the words of praise for Miriam and Aaron, for all their wonderful acts of service? Where was God's acknowledgement that their complaints against Moses had at least some legitimacy? There was none of that. Because their complaints were in essence a rejection of the Lord and His authority because He was the one who had chosen Moses and put him in that position. There was also judgment because their ambitions here were self-serving. And by speaking against Moses, who was God's chosen servant, They were speaking against God Himself. So the Lord was not pleased with their ambition. He, His anger burned against them. They were not given a chance to argue their case, to plead that, well, can't you give us just a little something? Please, no, Lord, no. His anger burned and He left. And then the cloud went up from above the tent. 
And immediately Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. Aaron turned to Miriam and saw that she was leprous. The Lord left and left Miriam with leprosy. This was not a mild skin itch. We will see in a moment from what Aaron says how severe this was, how it looked, what it must have felt like. We don't hear from Miriam again. She must have been overwhelmed by this. Miriam got the exact opposite of what she desired for herself. She got not recognition and a position above the people, but a curse and a condition that required her to be cast out from her people. Now, one of the questions that comes to mind immediately is, why Miriam and not Aaron? Well, it appears that Miriam, big sister as she was, was the instigator. Aaron was just kind of going along. There, there are some clues in the text that suggest that, but also simply the fact that God punished her but not Aaron suggests that she was the one truly deserving of the punishment. So what next? Aaron said to Moses, My Lord, please do not hold this sin against us. We have acted foolishly. We have sinned. Please do not let her be like a stillborn infant that comes out of its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. We do not hear a plea for forgiveness or mercy from Miriam herself. Aaron speaks for her. But she surely got the message from the Lord. Leprosy will do that. She was overwhelmed, undoubtedly. Not just by the leprosy. Not just by what happened to her physically. But by the words of judgment that she heard. Words spoken directly by the Lord to her. We see an interesting change here. Aaron not only acknowledges his own sin. He speaks for her as her representative. And in so doing, he does something that he did not do when he sinned by creating the golden calf, that earlier incident. This time, Aaron owns up to his own responsibility. He doesn't blame anybody else. He owns up to his own guilt here. And he asks, he pleads, don't let this continue. And then, well... Did Moses say, serves you right? Who did you think you were anyway, speaking against me? God gave you what you deserved. Yeah, why don't you suffer for a while just to learn your lesson? No. Moses cried out to the Lord, God, please heal her. Please. He prays. But what does that mean that he had already done? Forgiven. Forgiven Aaron. Forgiven Miriam, he was not holding this against them. Why not? Okay, he was humble. But why was he humble? It's because he knew who he was. And whereas, yes, in the past, he had undoubtedly thought in terms of what he deserved, what was his right, he understood instead that everything he had, he had because God chose to give it to him, not because he was of such great merit and worth. He was not better. He was forgiven. Forgiven by God. 
It was not about what he deserved. It was about the grace and mercy of the Lord. That's what he counted on for himself. And that's what he was pleading for, for his dear sister. He knew that he had a Lord who would come through, who would answer this prayer for mercy and grace. Because he knew what kind of Lord he had. Full, one full of compassion. The same Lord that we have. Moses looking forward, he could not see the cross on Calvary. He would not have known what Jesus would look like, the details of the cross and the nails and the crown of thorns. But he knew that God had salvation planned. A salvation that was entirely by grace. Entirely a matter of giving to people who trust in the Lord not what they deserve, but what God wants to give them in love instead. Jesus died, taking away our sins. Moses' confidence was in that forgiveness just as ours today is in that forgiveness. Moses' hope for life was not in his good works or his merit but in what he knew the Messiah that God promised would do for him. And so what does the Lord say? The Lord said to Moses, If her father had merely spit in her face, would she not be disgraced for seven days? Have her confined outside of the camp for seven days, and after that she can be brought back in. It doesn't say explicitly here, and the Lord healed Miriam, but he did because otherwise she would have had to remain outside the camp as a leper. This seven days was the normal period that after your cleansing, you had to stay out until you were able to rejoin the people as as clean. What this teaches us is first God's great mercy. He forgave Miriam. He healed Miriam. But there's another lesson there too. That even when there is forgiveness and restoration, the seriousness of sin cannot be forgotten. It doesn't just get, oh, forget about it. There are consequences. And we learn our lessons about sin and selfish ambition through this. So Miriam was confined outside of the camp for seven days, and the people did not set out until Miriam was brought back in. What happened to Miriam after this? She's not mentioned again until she dies, toward the end of the 40 years of wandering, as Israel finally began to approach the Holy Land. But she certainly learned a vivid lesson, not only about challenging the Lord and selfish ambition, even more about God's grace and mercy. She did not receive the full punishment she deserved, but instead was cleansed and allowed to return to her place with the people. We note even God's mercy in not having the people move on without her during those seven days. They waited until she was ready to rejoin them. So what is the lesson in ambition we learn here? And what about the question that we asked at the beginning? Is it okay for Christians to be ambitious? We note that in our reading from James, it is selfish ambition he condemns. There is such a thing as selfless ambition. That is what Moses had. 
and demonstrated with his leadership of Israel and the way he dealt here with his own brother and sister. But even more importantly, we see selfless ambition in Jesus. He had an ambition. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he was single-minded in pursuing that ambition. But it was never about getting ahead or, or grabbing what was due him. Remember how Paul described it in Philippians 2? Though he was by nature God, he did not consider equality with God as a prize to be displayed, but he emptied himself by taking the nature of a servant. When he was born in human likeness and his appearance was like that of any other man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is on display in our gospel today. As Jesus avoids the crowds that want to elevate him, and as he teaches his disciples where his soul-ransoming, sin-defeating ambition is leading him. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. Three days after he is killed, he will rise. So whom do we want to imitate? Not Miriam and Aaron, and not just because of what happened to her. We want to be, act, and speak, and love and pray like God's humble servant Moses and like the one who came to serve us, Jesus. This does not at all mean that we stop trying to, to do more or be better in our various vocations, just as, as Moses never stopped trying to be the best servant he could. Instead, it means that we constantly examine our motivations to make sure that we are all about service and self-denial, even if everyone around us is all about ego and self-gratification. Knowing that God not only gives all we need, but makes sure when, when we don't rebel against Him that, that we end up where we are supposed to be, well, knowing that means that, that, that we can be satisfied, content with our situations in our lives, in our families, in our careers, in our, in our church, while still working hard and, and looking ahead. In our gospel today, Jesus used a little child as an example for his disciples. We, we can look at a small child too to, to learn something about godly ambition. Does an infant learn to walk? Or a toddler learn to speak? Or a preschooler learn to wash his hands or tie her shoes because of a desire to get ahead of others? No. That is just growing as a child is supposed to, following the instruction or example of those given to guide them. Even a five-year-old's career aspiration, I want to be the best soccer player ever, that's not so much ego as it is the childlike recognition that anything worth doing and anything God has given you the desire to do is worth doing as well as you can. So we learn from Miriam and Aaron, and we imitate Moses. What we are as Christ's disciples and God's children is people with the ambition to do 
and serve better in our callings in life, to be faithful to the Lord and to His people. And with this wise humility, we will have, as James told us, purity and peace, mercy and good fruits, and sow a harvest of righteousness in our families, in our communities, in our jobs, and in the world. Father, grant this to us all. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.